Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. This episode kicks off a series of conversations centering on philosopher of religion Clayton Crockett's most recent monogram, which is called Energy and Change, a new materialist cosmotheology. So each week we're going to take a close look at uh, a different chapter in the book. After that, we'll talk to Clayton and have a chance to maybe get some clarity around certain things that that come up, and he can tell us how uh, horribly we've misread him. So that should be fun. Just a couple days ago, Matt Valor and I discussed the introduction, and so that's what you're going to hear in this episode. We're hoping to have some other people possibly join in as we go along, so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I think that's all I need to say about that. Just want to thank Clayton for being so supportive and engaging. And yeah, don't be foolish. You should go buy the book. I'll link to where you can find that in the show notes. All right, here's my conversation with Matt Valor on the introduction to energy and change. Peace. So this book is Energy and Change, A New Materialist Cosmotheology by Clayton Crockett. It was released, I think, last year. Is that right? Let me see. No, I think it was it was more recent than that, wasn't it? Wasn't it earlier this year? It says 2022, Columbia University Press. Right on. Must have been the back end of last year, yeah. Yeah. I This is the first book that I've officially gotten a shout out in the acknowledgements page, which is just I guess for engaging with his stuff you know so that was that was cool it's nice to see your name alongside all these other people Carl Raschke Laron Schultz it's good company to be in yeah yeah congratulations I enjoyed that I, I'm really interested to read this and I, I don't know Clayton Crockett as well as you do um, and I've come to his work um, much more recently his work appears to just sort of romp across disciplines sort of head first with real abandon uh but i don't mean that in that it's not sort of disciplined and rigorous, rigorous. Yeah. yeah um but it's there's it, there's no sense of well that's a discipline that you know that's probably out of bounds uh and i think that chimes with our own approach to wanting to think things in relation to other things and um, yeah. And it's, I mean, we'll talk about what comes up in this, but I mean, he's all over the place from physics to biology through to anthropology to political economy uh, mm-hmm. and then through to, to religion and theology. Yeah. yeah, it's extraordinary. No, I think that's right. And I don't know how he would respond to this. Maybe we can ask him about this because we're going to talk to him uh, at some point about the book. As you were just speaking now, I was like, oh, yeah, well, that's of course he does all those things because he's essentially a hermetic thinker. I don't know how he would feel about that, but certainly okay. I think he would accept being labeled as a thinker of contamination and perhaps even proudly. Uh, before we get started, you and I have read a couple books together now. We did Bernard Stiegler's Technics and Time, which is a lot of fun. And then we did Vicki Kirby's Quantum Anthropology's Life at Large. It was a great conversation. I'm, I, I feel bad that I that I lost it, but yeah, so we decided let's do this book next. We may have some uh, some other people joining us along the way to 
lend their expertise in different areas to kind of do a deep reading, help us do a deep reading of these different chapters, which, you know, of course, focus on different areas having to do with energy. But yeah, should we say something about Clayton? Like, do you have his bio handy? No. I'll look one up. Sure. Uh, There's a few different ones. I'll go to the uh, Westar Institute one. Let's see. Okay, so Clayton Crockett is Professor of Philosophy of Religion and Director of Religious Studies uh, at the University of Central Arkansas. Uh, I got his PhD from Syracuse University, his master's from the University of Virginia, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Biography. Clayton Crockett is a professor of philosophy and religion and the director of the religious studies program at the University of Central Arkansas. He specializes in radical theology and contemporary continental philosophy of religion. He's the author or editor of a number of books, including Radical Political Theology, Religion and Politics After Liberalism, Religion, Politics, and the Earth, The New Materialism with Jeffrey Robbins, and Doing Theology in the Age of Trump, a critical report on Christian nationalism. He's also a distinguished research fellow for the Global Center for Advanced Studies, and he's currently working on a philosophy of energy. Okay, so this is not the most current, but that gives you the idea of who he is and the stuff he works on. So one one thing I wanted to reflect on him just right off the bat in relation to the other books that you and I have read is just how much easier to read Crockett's style is. He he writes very uh, lightly, I think, and it's at an incredible pace to the point that that could be, I think, a critique, which would be something I'd be interested to think about having once I got to the end of the book uh, is a sufficient depth when you've covered so many ideas. But it's very, very readable in the sense that you're kind of bounding through an idea. We're straight through. It's very clear. We've got another one. We're moving on. Yep. Um, and uh, it's, it's just, I mean, Kirby's book was short. It Parts it was quite readable, but it, other parts, the sort of style of it is still a kind of continental philosophical. Um, and then Stiegler was, you know, full on translated from the French. And yeah, um, yeah sometimes really quite challenging so i and, and we're, we're also breaking this up into seven sections i think is 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 what we'd plan to do so one there's five chapters plus an introduction that we talk about today and then if we chat to Clayton at the end then that'll be seven in total so we're, we're dealing with much shorter chunks each time i agree with you when i was kind of reading through the introduction uh, there was a moment or two where you could almost blow by an entire thought that is linking to ideas because it's just kind of summed up in a sentence. I guess what I would say is the writing so far in some ways is very punchy. Yeah. Um, It's sort of like these quick statements. This is an introduction, so I don't expect there to be a lot of, you know, exposition and, and that sort of thing. And I think he's trying to do several things where he's locating himself uh, in mostly philosophical space but also the kind of audience that he's addressing and the sort of larger political and ecological context he's writing. So he's trying to do quite a lot in a short amount of space. So I, I understand why that might be the approach. But yeah, let's get into it. Like, what is this book fundamentally about? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I think it's a, a book of philosophy in a new materialist tradition, making the case for energy as an underexplored subject matter is how I would sum it up. And then I think there's a whole load of other things that we could add to that. 
So it's also clearly making some substantial contributions to thinking the philosophy of religion in relation to energy, not just as a phenomenon of religion, but as something that is tied to deep material processes, for example. Um, and then I also think, it, following on from other books that Crockett's done on political philosophy, uh, it's very clearly a book about political economy and political ecology and how those phenomena can be thought in relation to energy. And there's a pretty deep, from what I can see at the outset, a pretty deep engagement with some scientific concepts but he's saying, you know, this is not a book of science, but he makes this really interesting comment right at the very end of the introduction that both philosophy and science are works of the human mind after the fact um, to process what has happened. And I thought that was a great comment. Um, and so he's, you know, engaging pretty deeply with the latest scientific research, but for the purposes of, of writing on philosophy. I suppose one other thing I'd say is I've in that summary, I'm really putting the focus on energy, but really everything about what he's writing about energy is actually about change. And that's why the book is energy and change. And so all of those areas, whether it's new materialist philosophy, whether it's the philosophy of religion, whether it's political uh, philosophy, they're all in relation to energy, energy as the core, not really understood phenomena mm -hmm. that is responsible for change and that um, uh, drives change and that, um, that creates the conditions for change. From all of that, you get a book called Energy and Change. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, there's a couple areas that he kind of talks about exactly what he's up to. And I, I highlighted those. So he, um, just on page two, he says, this book is a philosophy of energy, drawing on various scientific, theoretical, and spiritual understandings of energy across multiple traditions. It instantiates a vision whereby energy is how we talk about change, and change is what is ultimately real. This vision is also a spiritual vision. Oh, by the way, that that, that idea that change is what is ultimately real so we have a kind of, I, I think right there, a confession to a variety of, of process uh, thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's going to come out more on the Deleuzian side of things, especially when you talk about energy, you're talking about a differential, uh, uh, an intensive differential. Uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't used that language yet, but I, I, I think that's right. Um, he says this vision is also a spiritual vision because energy also cuts across the opposition between spirit and matter and offers new ways to think about spirit in physical terms. And just continuing here on the next page, in this book, I privilege conceptions of energy and its concomitant change, and I examine their interactions across multiple plateaus, physics and thermodynamics, biology and life, political economy and political ecology, and spirit and religion or theology. None of these plateaus necessarily supersedes the others or renders them insignificant. Okay, so I mean, a lot of that you, you spoke to in what you just had to say, so it's a contribution to the field of new materialism. He is writing himself into that tradition. And I think that's right. It is interesting to consider that 
within the new materialist, I don't know, canon, I guess we could say, energy doesn't really seem to come up that much, which is really interesting because oftentimes speaking to the vibrancy and vitality and and animacy of matter, the agency of matter, but the conversation doesn't seem to, at least in what I've read, doesn't explicitly focus on energy. And I think something that's really key for Crockett, and he mentions it once or twice, is Einstein, how energy is mass. I forget what it is. I forget what the formula is. Yeah, t- times the square of the speed of light. So they're interchangeable and convertible at a, at a constant rate. Exactly. So I think that's an important contribution to the field of new materialism. He's also kind of, he references, it's not energy studies, is it? Um uh, uh, energy humanities. Energy humanities, which was a field that I'm not familiar with. Sounds no, I cool. wasn't either. So I think that's a very new. I, th- I got the I, I get the impression from what he's written that this is a new emerging field within humanities. I mean, there are all sorts of these like mm-hmm. sort of sub humanities spin-offs. Um, yeah. So I guess all that to say, there's an obvious interdisciplinary approach to all of this that. I think could be interpreted as a lot of like metaphysical speculation, I guess you could say. But I think there's an urgency to this book that is embedded within the ecological context and really can't be thought apart from that. I think that's what's animating a lot of the concern and the interest in his work. So there's a real practicality here as well, even though what I think what we're going to read is highly theoretical. I think ultimately it's intended to have some sort of practical purchase upon at least our thinking. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I, I think that you get that very strongly, that chapter three, the chapter on political economy and political ecology, is the focal point of why the book's been written uh, beyond the, you know, I'd like to make an interesting contribution to philosophy. You know, we are careering towards serious climate and ecological crisis. In fact, we are already in that, but it's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And... Crockett's analysis of the economy, uh, just from the introduction, it's very clear, this is primarily an economy driven by energy conversion. And so specifically, we're talking about petrochemical oxidation, mm-hmm. but um, you know, you could talk about all sorts of mineral extraction, you know, transformation of all sorts of minerals into other products that are then consumed. And But it's the, the industrial revolution that harnesses energy in a certain way and then uh, is saying you know from the 1970s onwards we're into a more financialized neoliberal economy uh where essentially the, everyone knows that energy is going to run out or, or at least the the ability to convert energy um at, at apparently uh, gain because under the first law of thermodynamics you can never create or destroy energy mm-hmm. you can only convert it but if you throw a load of things off your balance sheet, uh, like the millions of years of sun's energy decomposing carbons in order to create fossil yep. fuels, uh, then you don't have to account for that. And so you can create an efficient economic system, at least in the short term, that can burn those at a profit. And that's in Crockett's analysis, the global economy is currently based on. And that is not only unsustainable, economically it's unsustainable ecologically because uh it's killing us 
so what on earth are we going to do? And if we are going to do something, we're going to have to think about it in terms of energy. So I, I, I really agree with you. I think that that kind of practical drive to solve the urgent crisis we face came out really strongly as a kind of motivating factor. I, I agree with 99% of what you just said, just up until the end where you said, you know, to solve the problem because, and I'm not sure what to make of this right now, but I, I think it does resonate with me, especially at a time when everyone's looking for a, a solution, right? But how do you solve for solutionism? which I think is part of initially the problem. We can't get out of our own way in a certain sense. Instead of imagining a solution, I think he's saying the solution is to have a different imagination. He writes this, this is, I think, really compelling at the end of the, the first section. Many people are unable to imagine any genuine alternative to global capitalism, even though we understand that it is destroying the planet. We are conditioned to envisage and expect more and more growth. We are unwilling to change because we are unable to change. We are unable to imagine and live as a society and as a species without consuming our dwindling resources and discounting the future. What is to be done? What can we do? Which is the question you know, that everyone always asks. So, but what do we do about it? You know, one thing we can do is attempt to understand and define the problem, which is both simple and obvious, as well as incredibly complex. But what can ultimately be done to solve it? Nothing. There's nothing to be done. Why not? Because it's our nature. We are fulfilling our nature as living beings, and we cannot do otherwise. We maximize our resources, we reproduce to fill all available niches, and we emit waste products until our environment is no longer hospitable, and we collapse. We cannot change our nature. It is fixed, immutable, a death sentence just like life. We, <laughs> we have to change our nature, but that is impossible. But what if our nature is changed? That is the thesis of this book. So I, that was the only bit that I read that I was like, I don't know if this makes sense. So, I mean, I, uh, take your point about uh, problem solving being a, a kind of a mindset that is maybe stuck in the nature of the problem itself and conceiving it as a problem is a problem, you know, mm. I, I get that. I think I don't understand the claim that, our, I, I understand what he means about, you know, the, our nature is we're, we're animals at the end of the day, we're trying to maximize our resources and we just excrete waste product. I mean, that's what animals do. Um, so the human animal seems to do that in a, in a, I mean, this takes me back to, talking about Stiegler, you know, with this, this sort of incredible technicity that we've somehow produced or become absorbed by or something that allows us to do this at a scale that other, other animals can't do. Mm. Um, but then the nature, the, the, the bit about it's in our nature, we can't change our nature, but our nature is change. That feels like a play on words that's too clever. Like it doesn't, if the nature is changed, then of course we can change. Do you know what I mean? I, so this is interesting, right? Because on one hand, he's saying we are unable to change. At least that's what we oftentimes feel, experience. And the book itself is about change and energy transformation. I think he's suggesting that as so long as we don't understand the problem, we can't change. Or at least that's a major impediment to change. And then he's kind of offering this anthropological proposition that perhaps our nature is change. And so therefore, our perceived inability to change is not correct. 
I'm not sure. I'm I'm trying to be generous here. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I, it's I think it's a really fascinating. So the whole topic is fascinating because if being is as Crockett is stating in this introduction, if being itself is change, mm -hmm. then change is at the very heart of everything. And the question to be figured out shouldn't necessarily be why do things change? It should be why do things stay the same? Right. If, if, if being is change. And yet what we experience, what you and I and you you know, what, what people at the human scale of the physics of the world experience is things that seem to persist quite well. So our bodies persist for a certain period of time. The objects around us persist. There are trees and animals and buildings and all sorts that, that don't seem to fall apart. And what I inferred from what Crockett's describing in the introduction is he wants to investigate some of the processes by which form becomes possible in a world that is so radically constituted by perpetual change. And I think this is where, and I, I'm not a, a Deleuzian, so I, I always feel like I'm grasping a bit. Um, my understanding was that this idea that there's like a surface which has some kind of stability, and so changes might be happening and yet the surface might appear to hold. Uh, and others have tried to express that in different ways. Like, why does something appear to be the same? I mean, why do our bodies appear to be the same when we're constantly shed shedding atoms and cells and all that all the time, but we, we just appear to be stable? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a sort of deeply Heraclitian vision of the world at play there. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about that? Because uh, he's quite explicit about bringing that in, right? The introduction begins with, Here's a potted history of philosophy. Plato yeah. sets up this tension between uh, Heraclitus and Parmenides, change or stability. Uh, and Plato wants to say that some things do change, but they are held by these abstract forms. Mm -hmm. And and so Crockett carries on. He's talking about Aristotle and Energia uh, um, as a kind of energy behind uh, this kind of process. Um, but at some point we get down to Epicurus and the Epicurean swerve, which is really the introduction of chance into right. the realm of both philosophy and physics. And I, I think that the point he brings that up is where he, he has his fascinating insight about uh, Marx writing his doctoral thesis on this, um, unless I'm confusing two things. Um, no, that, that's right. Yeah, and and uh, because new materialism is often set against a kind of Marxist determinant, determinist materialism, sort of reductive materialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and Crockett saying actually, uh, there's this work been done that shows that Marxist materialism was more dialectical than that in the sense that it was willing to to bring in chance as part of how materialism unfolds. But I think what's interesting about all of that is this sense that there's stability and there's change and that chance, as I read it in what Crockett is advocating, that chance is really uh, at the heart of the universe. Yeah. And uh, I know there's a chapter in here that is going to center primarily around the work of Catherine Malibu. I read a little bit of Malibu. I'm not super familiar with her, but you know she's kind of well known for her idea of plasticity 
and she centers on form in her philosophy. Being has the capacity to give form, to receive form, and it also has this explosive capacity to destroy form. And so I think he's kind of placing himself alongside, perhaps even just a bit prior to the work of Malibu, but uh, she's an important part of this conversation because she posits a a form of being that is mutable all the way down. I'm still in the middle of reading uh, Michelle Saris's late work, Incandescence, where he's kind of reintroducing a grand narrative, which is based on a certain kind of cosmology, even a standard cosmology, where time is less understood as a sort of linear succession as events, but as a a flowing of all matter. So there's, a again, a deeply Heraclitian vision network there that I think is very much consummate with this idea of being that is mutable and that the nature of any given thing is change. To return to the point we were just making, I think for Crockett, that's his starting point. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, once you get into, you know, once you trace the brief sort of history of philosophy, we're into the philosophical history of new materialism. It is interesting, actually, just um, from a new materialist perspective, just seeing that version of a genealogy. But he's saying you've got Whitehead. And so we're clearly in we we have a kind of process thought there. We have uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty and a focus on bodies and that actually the enfleshed nature of a body and that following right. Merleau-Ponty, there's this sense that actually thinking in terms of bodies becomes productive, not just the human body, but all types of matter can be thought in terms of bodies. And then the third strand of new materialism is uh, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, and particularly Crockett wants to major on Deleuze and his difference and repetition, which he sees as Deleuze's kind of masterwork. And the idea of intensity and differentiation, which Deleuze draws from Heidegger, uh, trying to solve the problem of how do you talk about difference if you don't want to talk about identity or some prior sameness. And so it's the patterns of differentiation that are forced over each other by some kind of force called intensity. It's the effects of the difference that are what are noted and and felt. Um, I, I think you're I think you're right in the way that he takes up Deleuze, but there was a moment in here where I sensed a a sort of a little bit of a distancing from a certain reading of of Deleuze, where he's trying to provide a sort of you know ontological like a primary ontological status of difference. I think Crockett wants to qualify that. This is not a purely philosophical affair. When we talk about energy, we're talking about a differential across a gradient. There's a very physical mm. dimension to it that is at the same time metaphysical. And in fact, I think he, at one point he says in here, physics is metaphysics. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really profound statement that maybe when we talk to him, I would like to hear him unpack a little bit more. I, I mean, I think that's right, but I would be <laughs> I would be hard pressed to elaborate a lot on that on that point. Yes, yeah, tricky terminology metaphysics, isn't it? Because um words like metaphysics for me go in the same category of words like God, where I, you know, it depends who we're talking to as to what we mean. Well that's really interesting. And maybe we can 
pick up on that because I think we mentioned earlier, he, he's writing out of a death of God, radical theology, or at least a radical theology space that has its roots in death of God theology. And he does get to that very late in the introduction where he starts talking about God. Again, this is a cosmo theology. He mentions Keller and Rubinstein, people who are in uh, radical theology adjacent. But I had this part highlighted that I think maybe we can pick up on. The affirmation of change, and even of God as the all of change, is a form of love. Love can be considered a form of spiritual energy that radiates liberating transformations. The future, if there is one for humans and related beings, is open. We may not survive, but energy is conserved, infinitely, in its irreducible multiplicity. There is a cosmotheological vision that opens up in that kind of language. Or the idea is, yeah, we we might not make it, but love will go on. I I affirm that theologically. <laughs> so that was actually, that reminds me, that was the other bit I read. I was like, I don't know what that means. In the sense that, I mean, I agree, we might, you know, we, we could very well not make it. Uh, and at some point, our species will die out. So firstly, who are we? Like, how do we constitute us and some sense of who we're talking about? Are we talking about the human species? Is that the is that our solidarity? Is our solid does our solidarity extend to other species? Does it in fact extend to notions of matter? Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as we get into those questions, we're into questions of identity because until we can draw boundaries and put and place names for things within those boundaries, we're unable to speak of this versus that, or us versus them, or I versus thou. So. In that mix, I think, then I don't understand what the concept of love might mean as an energy. Um, and maybe this will come out in the book, and I'll be really interested in that. But I felt right. like, what do we mean by love? Are we renaming a form of energy? Because if we are, then I, I think, as Crockett says earlier, there is there's no way to think about energy transfer without destruction even if you're also thinking about creation so then are we are we saying that there's no way to think you know if, if we're going to affirm love are we affirming destruction yes as well as well as creation okay. i think and, and i think so what why are we using that why are we using that language as opposed to other language i'm not saying we shouldn't i just i feel like that needed it needs a whole lot more interrogation for me i i, I agree and i i'm hopeful that we'll get more of that but I think what you're kind of pointing towards uh, from a theoretical perspective, from a sort of cosmological perspective, are things that, for me, I want to affirm. Once you sort of make the case that everything is everything, there's a way of interpreting that and sort of taking that up that I think results in a kind of nihilism. Nihilism is a horizon of possibility <laughs> within the nature of being. I think what he wants to say, and maybe I'm speaking prematurely here is that love is the possibility of change, which entails risk and chance. Now that obviously needs an unpacking as well. And a lot of times I just say things I intuit are correct. And then somebody will challenge me on them. And then I'm like, ah, good. I have an excuse to actually do some thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a, uh, that's a good scientific method. <laughs> I think that's right. Put, put out a hypothesis. Yeah. 
No, I mean, I think that uh, love as a possibility of change is really interesting. You know, I think about, you know, like a deep committed relationship. There's some aspect of that where there's some conservative instinct to, um, and I mean that in in a small C and not in the American political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got you. But in the sense that you're trying to conserve something. You're trying to preserve conserve i mean a whole in, in that sense i'm i i'm a conservative i'll put up my right hand and my left right. hand on the bible i'm a conservative in that yeah, sense because and and all of that all of us who you know i i share Crockett's um uh, obsession with uh climate and ecological catastrophe as a as a horizon that should shape thought yeah. and action and so on so i'm i'm completely there um and the instinct under those circumstances is to conserve right it's to say you know I, I don't want all of these species to die uh let's conserve them therefore let's limit temperature rise the possibility of change is actually terrifying and is why we're struggling we're struggling right but but at the same time and i, I think this is maybe part of the conundrum of of or a big part of what the conundrum of what he's exploring is that we can't stop the change. I mean, I, I'm looking out my window right now, and there are some beautiful trees, and I don't want them uh, to die because Cornwall becomes a desert under extreme temperature conditions. But at the same time, there is change happening all the time in right. those trees right now. I mean, there are cells dying, cells being reborn. There's all kinds of energy processes related to photosynthesis and respiration uh, and that's to do with all kinds of other energy transfers around light radiation and moisture absorption by the soil and, and so on and so on so after you say moisture absorption the so on and so on is the right thing to say <laughs> after that <laughs> no keep going keep going so the so i suppose this is why this is such a brilliant topic to write about because actually we don't know how to think about change we we don't know how we feel about change because on the one hand we can come to terms with the fact that change is an integral part of our life and if nothing changes we feel trapped and stultified and um, unable to live uh, and yet if too much changes we feel terrified and we have genuine reasons to even fear for our survival and so how on earth are we meant to think change within yeah. that nexus? And I suppose then when you start talking about things like love, um, when it might mean things like solidarity or care, or yeah. I can I can get behind that. Yeah, and I think there's a tension that that runs throughout that entire sort of, I'm not sure what to say, sort of edifice of terms beginning with creation and destruction and holding those things together and being considerate of the idea that life is something that skims right above the surface of death. It rides the boundary of chaos. And yeah, there's definitely love in wanting things to persist. Another form of love is in letting things be what they're going to be um, and allowing for the agency of the world. I mean, I could probably offer a really super orthodox rendering of this that would be right for the wrong reasons. But you know what image came to mind when you were speaking just now is Moses breaking the rock open. One of the stablest things you can come across. What's underneath there? Living water. I don't think there's a resolution for 
these kinds of tensions and binaries. And I know that we're getting a little bit more sort of uh, metaphorical now, but I think that's a valid rendering of the essential project that he's up to as well. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, or at least I'm going to claim that it is. And you know, No, I, but... I absolutely think so. I think this is a project that mandates that you learn how to speak multiple languages. I mean, we, we have to learn how to speak the language of physics, of biology, of politics, of economics, of anthropology, of religion, and of theology, uh, and maybe others. And and ultimately, for all of that, we probably need some some poetry. So, I, yeah, I think it requires, uh, it invites, I think, a, a very multifaceted type of approach. Which I think speaks to the hermetic quality of a, of a text like this and the the challenge that it poses i was going to say ethically but and that's not wrong but i guess intellectually and and spiritually i'm happy to use those two terms together with a little less cynicism because i think that is an important project in and of itself is to find ways to cut across these unhelpful enough and unproductive notions of materialism and idealism yeah. or or the sensible and the intelligible i think we can legitimately speak about all these things in the same tongue uh, without having to cross our fingers. It reminds me, um, I wanted to reference a connection with uh, Latour's primary philosophical work, uh, Modes of Existence. Yeah, I mean, basically what Latour does is he sets out like 13 different modes of existence and wants to describe agency in relation to these different modes. And I think I, I felt like there was something something of a resonance with what Crockett's doing where he's he's wanting to talk about energy and change is like the core mm. of what being is but talk about them in all sorts of different registers while saying you know in a in in the manner of Deleuze and Guattari these are all plateaus uh so they right. are not you know they they're different different modes perhaps in Latour's language but they're not hierarchical I mean, my own intellectual focus, as you know, is translation. And so Latour's thing was uh, following Serres. The key task is how do we translate these between each other? Uh, how do we translate these modes? It feels like there's something of that in Crockett's work. Like we, if we're going to talk about energy, what, what's been missing is how do we talk about energy in political economy? And how do we talk about energy in physics? And how do we talk about energy in spirituality in a way that we can translate without reducing any of them we can we can see how they all become part of one sort of um uh meshwork to use ingold's language yeah i think meshwork is a good way to put it i like what you're saying about the the centering of energy and then you have these different facets of being when i kind of put those things together giving into my more occult proclivities i like to think of reality as such as a sort of crystal with all of these different facets. And as you turn the crystal, you see different things and it's not possible to see them all at once. Mm. All you can do is sort of try to get a sense of a bigger picture. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that is essentially a hermetic project. I think we've said maybe what we need to say <laughs> as an introduction. Yeah, I, I, was, I was a little concerned that we weren't gonna have enough to, to talk about, but that hasn't been a problem. Yeah, and it's an extraordinary introduction, really. I mean, as a as a chapter of writing, you obviously finish it and you're like, well, I want to read the book now. Uh, but he said a lot of things in a relatively a, short chapter. A lot, a lot. Yeah. yeah. 
it's um it's a great read i'm really yeah. looking forward to the the next sessions to be honest because i think there's so much in there that he set up that that sort of wet the appetite and so just to kind of give anyone who is listening a sense of where we're going uh chapter one is energy and the dynamics of nature two is vital matters bioenergetics and life three is political economy and political ecology energy general economy and exchange uh four which is i don't know why the one i'm most excited about of spirit in amerindian voodoo and chinese traditions uh five radical theology in the nature of god so that's like kind of the long arc of where this thing is going and uh yeah i'm looking forward to it as well nice one